Hello and welcome to this episode of King's College London's Geography Pinter Science 2023, where we bring the scientists to the pub to talk about their research and then through the power of technology to you, our lovely listener. I'm your host, Torren Whitehead, and I'm a doctoral researcher exploring different possible future visions for the Scottish landscape, of which one could include large carnivores such as lynx. As ever, I'm joined by Meryl. Hi Meryl, how are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm slightly jealous of my very asleep cat who's been sleeping for hours on my bed. <laughs> well, this episode is the second of three about the climate emergency from our Pint of Science event back in May. And today, once again, we do not need to be virtually transported anywhere because we have the scientist live with us. It's Dr. Fiona Turner. Hi, Fiona. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Beth. I'm good, thanks. Good, good. And uh, you're just in the office today, I can see. Yes, I'm sat working away completely alone. All the other postdocs have abandoned me for various field works or working from home scenarios. So, so you're not planning uh, any immediate trips off to Antarctica? Sadly not. I keep trying to suggest that a statistician really needs to go there to really understand data analysis, but everyone just keeps rebuffing me. <laughs> That's a shame. Maybe this podcast is your opportunity to uh, take your appointment. <laughs> yes, yeah, someone please take me south. <laughs> we can name it that. There we go. That's the name sorted. Um, and I suppose, uh, how was it kind of leaving the computational bubble and entering a pub to kind of speak to people uh, about about your research was it was it quite nerve-wracking um I found it quite easy to be honest not to sound big-headed or anything <laughs> but I mean I'm used to being the token statistician in a sort of climate science world so every day I seem to be having to explain different techniques and thought processes and methods for people who have no experience with it whatsoever Mm. Um, and Pine of Science actually lined up, so I'd had uh, several events where I was giving similar length talks to completely different audiences. And so I was sort of on a bit of a roll when it came to explaining what I do to a completely new mm. um, sort of group. Well, I really enjoyed your uh, your analogy about the England Euros for the kind of, I won't say this right, for the Pisteria <laughs> distribution. And I just wanted to ask you actually quickly. Before Pisteria. We... Pisteria, sorry, sorry. But, and I want to ask you quickly before, before we... <laughs> I wanted to ask you before we got into the pod about what your how your belief system was for the England for the World Cup at the moment. Uh, I've been very bad at keeping up with watching the World Cup, to be honest. Um, so the person who usually has me watching it all the time is my office mate Josh, who's in Minnesota right now. Uh, so if he's not sat next to me talking about the latest game, then I do not know what's going on. <laughs> he must be gas because uh, the Kiwi gals they won their first game. Um, with kind of like an unexpected result. So he would have been, yeah, nattering your ear off. I was texting him at lunch because we were watching watching a game and he was very sad to be working in a field. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> He's painting his plants, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Josh. <laughs> but yeah, the analogy is a good one. It's something I had to come up with as part when I was doing my PhD because I was part supervisor at the British Antarctic Survey, so I was constantly having to go down there and talk about Bayesian statistics. And it's something that you can't ever assume people know about, but it's also something that actually comes really naturally to you. 
So it's all about finding the easiest, sort of most intuitive way of explaining these methods. Mm. And that's what gets people on board with actually then paying attention to what statisticians have to say. That nicely leads on to that question about science communication and why you value it yourself, or if you, assuming you do, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, why you value it and kind of maybe if you can give an insight into how you come up with it as well, like maybe how you came up with the football one. Is it something someone said and you're like, wait a minute, that works as this, or is it just brainstorming sort of thing? Um, I can't really remember how the football analogy came about. I think I was just happening to be presenting a lot during, to be honest, I said the Euros at Pint of Science. When I first did it, I think it was one of the World Cups mm -hmm. that I just passed by. Um, but it's just, it's one of those um, scenarios where everyone has a pretty strong opinion about it. Somehow in these tournaments we always seem to flip that on its head for a bit and then you get some final sort of game that sort of confirms what exactly has happened so it just seems and again like i said in the in the talk it's sort of a universal language like people know what football is and how how it's played out you know so it's quite an easy way of introducing the subject mm. uh, when it comes to science communication i think it's really important I mean, you can't really have all these scientists like in the ivory towers doing all this amazing work and then not passing it on to, you know, the general public, people on the street. I mean, a lot of the work we do is funded by the government. So you could argue that it's, you know, a lot of taxpayers' money goes towards the work we do. So it's important that they get to hear about what we're doing, uh, especially in climate. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Sometimes from you know well-meaning people sometimes from not well-meaning people so it's especially important that climate scientists are out there and saying you know this is how it is and this is what we need to do and either you know giving people a bit of a kick up the ass as to what needs to be done but also sharing some of the hopes that don't you know sort of fall into a pit of despair like there's still time for us to do something and make sure that there's still a planet left you know by the end of this century briskly moving on from that note um but <laughs> I, I was wondering how uh, how much of that misinformation perhaps you face with your work in particular because i suppose computational modeling can be such an abstract concept to a lot of people so i know in your talk you mentioned kind of 15 meters of sea rise potentially by uh the year 2300 um and is that something you come up against um not personally i'm still quite early in my career so i think sort of all those sort of rabid climate deniers haven't quite got my number yet. Um, but I'm, there's plenty of more senior scientists that I know that have had to deal with it a lot. And, you know, my uh, my boss, Tamsin Edwards, is big on Twitter, so she gets a lot of a lot of sort of discourse about these things. Even people that, so, you know, in theory are like on the side of climate science and doing things, like even get down to really technical points and they will get really argumentative about whether what she did was correct or whether what she said was correct and I've sort of like sort of sat there and just seen these messages coming up being like this is just insane how like these tiny things can make people furious um so yeah hopefully I never get fully attacked by any kind of climate denialists because yeah fingers crossed <laughs> yeah that just <laughs> do you kind of you know how people play out their like Oscars acceptance speech in their mind. Have you played out your comeback to a 
climate change doesn't exist comment? I mean, it's one of those things where you think, what's the point in debating it with them? Because it's just, it's not a debatable topic. Climate change is happening. It is because of mankind. And that's just how it is. It's like, I remember slight tangent, but like Richard Dawkins going on that all these people of faith would want to debate with him about whether God exists. And he was like, why would I do that? Because like, that's a huge event for you, but not for me. Like, it's basically saying that this is an interesting thing to debate. And like that to one side, like I said, like climate change is not something that we should be arguing over whether it's happening. We should be agreeing it's happening and mm. discussing what to do with it. Yeah, that's, So that's... I can't even say that if someone came at me on Twitter or anything and tried to argue with me that climate change isn't real, like I'd probably just block and move on because like, what am I going to say to them in 280 characters that they haven't heard before? Yeah, Very true. that just made me think of, uh, you see it now kind of when they're debating Just Stop Oil and climate change kind of around that. Lots of new media outlets kind of bring on other people for, for nuance and so it's not biased one way or the other, but like you say, it's not something that actually needs to be debated per se. Yeah, maybe allowing it to be debated somehow leaves the door open for the option of it not being true. Um, because if you acknowledge something is debatable, then something is not fact. The BBC had issued for years over like false balance because they kept having climate deniers on when climate right. change was being discussed. And it's like, it's not, this isn't a balanced debate because if you've got 99.9% .9 of scientists agreeing it's real, having one climate scientist and one climate denier on, that's not, true balance because that's not what the maker of the science community believes but i think that's a good place to pause and to listen to your talk now fiona when the world's nations came together and said we want to keep warming below two degrees and as close to one and a half as possible and already we're starting to creep up on that fairly quickly so sea level is one of the most visible consequences of sea level rise. It's something that a lot of coastal nations and cities are concerned about, and they really want to know what's going to be happening in the near future. So they need to know what's happening in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, maybe even more than that. And that's so that they can do mitigation and adaptation. So we have places like the Maldives, which is literally pouring sand into places to raise their land so that they're not giving up too much um, to sea level rise. You have places like the Netherlands, which has as a policy that they're giving up 0% of their land to sea level. So they really need good, strong predictions of what the sea level looks like. And then this is the um, latest projections we've got. So the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, writes these huge reports every few years where they summarise the latest science on climate change. And so they came up with these sets of projections for the years 2100. So we've got um, sea levels since 1950, which we call present. And then these projections under these different emission scenarios, which I'm going to uh, describe in a bit more detail in a minute. And basically, as emissions are going um, increasing, we're getting more sea level rise, but we're also getting more uncertainty. So these shaded regions are getting bigger. And then they also did this scenario for what we call li low likelihood, high impact storylines. So a lot of that's to do with the ice sheet, so Greenland and Antarctica. And if they hit various sort of low likely, but quite important tipping points, then we're going to be seeing greater still sea level. So this was the sort of work that you could do up to the year 2100. But when you're looking at multi-centennial timelines, so looking at the year 2300, they could only come up with sort of these uncertain sort of boxes giving a likely range of sea level rise. And even then, for this red box, this high scenario, they couldn't rule out 15 meters of sea level rise. 
So there's emission scenarios that I mentioned, that SSPs, there's a shared socioeconomic pathways. I'm not going to go into too much detail about what they are. They're describing various sort of um, emissions and pathways we could be following as a planet. But the key thing is this uh, lowest one, 119, is one and a half degrees. So that's keeping uh, in line with the Paris Agreement fully. This one, 126, is two degrees. That's still pretty much keeping in Paris, maybe going a little bit over. This one up here, 585, that's over four degrees. So if you think about what Mike just said about what that sort of difference can mean to the planet, this is a really uh, sort of dangerous and difficult scenario we could be following. So the latest research is showing just how much impact the ice sheets in particular are having on sea level rise, and they're starting to take over as sort of the most important um, contributors. And we can see this blue one is Greenland, and that's giving quite an um, obvious sort of uh, logical follow-through of the climate's warming. It's losing mass. It's uh, contributing more to sea level. But my uh, sort of personal favorite, most interesting ice sheet is Antarctica. And that's because we're not quite sure what's happening with Antarctica. Thank you, Tamsin. <laughs> so we tend to break Antarctica up into the east, the west, and the peninsula. And we can see that the uh, west in green and the peninsula in red is losing mass and contributing. The east is a lot more difficult to predict. It's holding pretty steady. And these shaded regions are the uncertainty. So what I want to know is, what is happening in Antarctica? Like, why are we getting such quite wide projections, even of sort of present day contributions that we can observe? So Antarctica. <laughs> Thank you. So this is what it looks like if you've never turned the globe upside down. So, we got, so we've got the east up here, this big bit. This is the west. And this pointing towards South America is the uh, peninsula. And it's about 14.2 million kilometers squared. So to put that into context, the continent of Antarctica is equal to two Australias, one and a half USAs, and 44 British Isles. So it's a pretty big place for us to try and model. And understanding how um, Antarctica is reacting to climate change is really key. That's because of just how much ice Antarctica holds. So it's got about 70 million kilometers squared of ice. No, 70 meters sea level rise. Can't remember the number for the ice at the moment. Um, and one of the things that sort of comes up a lot is what we call these doomsday glaciers, or this one specific glacier, rather. And that's because glaciers basically are like rivers. So they're frozen streams of ice that are moving towards the edge of the continent. So this is a map of ice velocities from NASA. You can see all these rivers of ice that are heading towards the sea. And we need to know what's happening to these glaciers of, because of just how much they could contribute to sea level rise. So this so-called doomsday one that's reported in the news a lot is great. It's the size of Great Britain. And we're talking about half a meter of sea level rise if just that one glacier goes. So there's a lot of research going on at the moment to understand what's happening. Um, and it's sort of key to understand what's happening in West Antarctica because of the nature of how glaciers react and how they contribute to sea level rise. So in case you don't know exactly what uh, the make of Antarctica is like, you've got this huge ice shelf. So this is the part of the ice sheet that isn't attached to the bedrock. It's like floating on the ocean. And as the ocean warms up, it's going under the ice sheet, and it's melting it, and it's uh, sort of thinning it out. And so more and more glacier is able to come out um, into the ocean. And so if you think that this ice shelf is acting like a plug holding all the ice in, 
Once you're losing ice shelf, you're sort of pulling the plug out of Antarctica and all these glaciers can sort of rush into the sea level. So sort of, we get more warming, we're going to get more thing of the ice shelf and the glaciers are going to speed up and it basically becomes a cycle of more and more sea level rise. So, it's really important that we know what's happening in Antarctica, but it's really difficult to model for many reasons. One of those, it's big, as I've just said. It's remote, so we didn't have research stations there until the 50s. We weren't getting sort of whole continental observations till satellites went up in 79. And we still don't really understand it. So there's a lot of arguments amongst the community about various processes that might or may not be happening. People's models, which is the better model. Does it, you know, what's the melt parameterization that we really should be using? Stuff that me and Tamsin have to deal with every day. <laughs> But I'm interested in the uncertainty within these models and the projections and basically working out how to quantify it in some way. So, how do we model something that big and complicated? So, a lot of people will use computers and physical equations, so they'll come up with all this idea of how ice reacts to climate and the oceans and things, write these thousand lines of code, run it through supercomputers and get results. I like to use statistics. And that's basically taking all these computers and physical equations and coming up with some quick statistical version of it, which is a lot faster and easier to run. That's what others do, and I like to do statistics. Now I know, <laughs> now I know what you are thinking when I say statistics. <laughs> Not really. No one's ever said that. Not even a statistician. And that's usually because people get bored by statistics or they had a bad math teacher at school. But what I really want everyone to think to know is that you're all naturally statisticians, and in particular, you're all naturally Bayesian statistics. Now, I know what everyone's thinking. What is Bayesian statistics? <laughs> and it's basically the way that everyone thinks day to day. Now, I could talk about equations and statistical, statistical theory, but instead I came up with an analogy for things like this in the international language of football. So if you all thought about uh, the Euro 2020, uh, if I asked you beforehand what's the likelihood of England winning, you'd have all said, yeah, exactly, they're not going to win, they never win, and that's what as a statistician I'd call your prior belief. So that's what you think based on sort of your own belief system. But once you were watching Euro 2020 and you saw England winning and doing better and better, then hopefully you'd be updating your belief system until by the time we got to the final at Wembley, then you were convinced England was going to win. And that's just what Bayesian statistics is. So you have a belief about something, it might be informed, it might be uninformed, but once you observe some data and things, then you update that belief and then you get what we call a posterior distribution or a posterior uh, belief. So, that's in the sort of terms of football. How does this relate to climate science? So I use Bayesian statistics to do what I call, what is, what I call, what is called Gaussian process regression. So you might have had a linear regression, which is basically modeling a straight line. If you did a quadratic regression, it would give you a curve. A Gaussian regression will do whatever it wants. It's really flexible. It moves around. <laughs> okay, so what I do, well, I don't run the ice sheet models myself. I get other people to do that for me. But they take these huge models on supercomputers, run them several hundred times. Using those ice sheet model runs, I can create an emulator like the demo I just showed you, super flexible, taking into account all the data I give it and giving me uncertainty on top of that. And you can then use that emulator to build projections of how the ice sheets contribute to sea level rise. 
So an example of that is this. So we've got the East Antarctic on the left and the West on the right, and each curve is a different ice sheet model. And you can see just how much they still disagree. So this is showing uh, sea level rise at the year 2100, and you've got really different shapes, really wide ranges, really narrow ranges. So there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot of disagreement about what's going on. But we do that, so we do that for Antarctica, we do it for Greenland, we do it for the glaciers, and we end up with something like this. I forgot the citation, but this is Tamsin's paper from Nature a couple of years ago. Shout out to Tamsin. <laughs> and we get these time series. So we get these projections of sea level rise uh, over many years, showing the different uncertainties as well. And we get these main projections showing all the different SSPs of the sea level rise. And we're still getting this wider range when we take into account a lot more of the uncertain processes within Antarctica. So despite all the power and the wonderfulness of statistics, there's still a lot more we need to learn. Uh, so if you want to know more about this, a quick shout out to the project I'm part of, Protect. So it's an EU project where we're looking at not just creating the most up-to-date long-term sea level projections, but we're working hard at communicating them in a way that stakeholders, so governments, coastal planners, things like that can use. And they have a big part of their Twitter is about communicating that to everyone, creating different videos, and really explaining the science behind it. Um, and on that, thanks for listening. Damn. It's a good talk. It's got to be said. I think, for me, the thing that strikes me is, fine, I did A-level maths. No brag. But I haven't really touched maths in years. And I think you do an incredible job in making something that is so dense and has an incredible amount of like statistical thought behind it actually really accessible. So I think you have to tap yourself on the back for that. Um, have you ever come up against the sort of dislike for maths particularly? So you're saying, I'm a statistician, I can show you things. But fundamentally, some people just really have an adverse reaction to maths for whatever reason. And how do you kind of tackle that as a um, inside comms and stuff? Yeah, I mean, maths has such a bad reputation. Like, people right. can learn to hate it from a really young age. And, yeah, it does drive me crazy a bit how people seem to just accept that, like, oh, I'm crap at maths or I hate maths or stuff yeah. like that. It's like, I think you just had a bad maths teacher, you know? Like, um, I was lucky that the high school I went to the maths teachers were all really good. Like their undergraduate degrees were all actually in maths, which isn't always a given for a lot of subjects at schools nowadays. And they were just like charismatic, good teachers. And it actually led to a lot of the people in my year at school going on to do maths or some kind of maths related degree. Um, so, I mean, like the way to solve this sort of from the ground up is to invest a lot more in decent mathematical education from a young age. But obviously that's not something that we're going to tackle on this podcast. Uh, me, personally, you sort of get used to people wincing a bit when you tell them you're a statistician, and then you sort of have to then convince them that what you're doing is interesting. Um, it can be a bit of an uphill battle, depending on who you're talking to, but yeah, I've, like we just heard on, on that talk, I've definitely come up with ways of making it a bit more approachable, a bit easier for people to get their heads around what it is I do. Because well, I, like I think these techniques are actually not that difficult to do people just often have like the thought in their head that they can't do it i think there can also be an element of 
like the, the step can be so great that actually it's quite hard for someone who is very competent in it to explain down but it's very hard to access if you don't have like very rudimentary kind of understanding of what's there like I remember when we first started chatting and stuff and you'd be like yeah I'm a statistician I'm like well where's your median where's your mode and if you ain't got any means like I'm not interested because in my mind that was social stats and is really in that realm because my academic education has called that stats and becomes that generalized word for actually something that's quite specific so yeah the warped kind of conceptions of what is stats as well and how you become one or the other it's just yeah it's really interesting um but I think definitely through hearing your work it's like oh okay wow stats goes a lot further than the medium people (laughs) (laughs) It definitely does. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I used to be a statistics tutor doing like when I was doing my PhD, and that was helping people at the university from all departments. So I really got my head around what each department classes as statistics and what methods they're going to be used to. And it sort of gives you a good window into, oh, like this is what I'd call statistics, and this is what all these other academics would call statistics. And I suppose why are statistics so important? Uh, and I suppose it has quite a high relevancy, the work you do for kind of governments and policymakers and having these kind of future predictions of what a sea level rise, for example, could look like. Yeah, I mean, governments don't just want a single number when it comes to things like sea level rise and climate change. They want a range. They want what we call professionally uncertainty quantification. So they want sort of the projection of something like sea level rise to be described in terms of sort of likely, less likely, things like that. So statistics definitely has a huge role to play when it comes to climate science and communicating the risks and um, the adaptations we need to do to really come to terms with it. And does that always capture the uncertainty? And, you know, saying, saying something is less likely or unlikely... It, does that conveys and I suppose this is you know perhaps a policy document so it doesn't have it's, it's not trying to change anyone's opinion but does that convey the urgency of it uh well it's giving those phrases very precise meaning so in the UN climate change report a likely scenario means it's within the 33rd and 66th percentiles of the distribution so if you imagine like a bell curve like a normal distribution it's basically the middle two-thirds of that distribution is your likely range right so you give definitions like that and then you can just use likely but then informed people who are reading it will know that that's that's what it's referring to Um, so as long as everyone's sort of singing from the same choir sheet then it's quite easy to communicate sort of exactly what we mean when we're when we're giving these statistics see that, that i was thinking you statisticians were just being quite waffly of oh it's unlikely or likely <laughs> but actually there, there are these very precise scientific definitions as to what these mm. these different terms mean i wonder if that needs a bit more transparency i don't know i don't know if it's necessary because we all have an understanding of what likely means but if you can say likely is then determined by that sometimes i think the news like expects the people not to be able to understand and therefore leaves it vague instead of giving the option of explaining i don't know yeah i'm not sure it's difficult always to say what level you should be presenting these scientific things at i mean i know i read plenty of the un reports and they have the 
sort of summary for policymakers, which is a much shorter, much easier to digest document and probably does have the definitions of likely and things like that in it. And then you get the full report, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages and goes into way more in-depth stuff in which I only really read the chapter to do with cryosphere and sea level rise because that's the bit that is relevant to me. Um, but yeah, there are sort of levels of detail and science-ness that you can get into, but I think you sort of need to know these things exist and often they're not super well advertised to sort of general people. Yeah, like BBC Bite Size. <laughs> they need to have it on there. <laughs> yeah, they need a link to... Uh, it's, it's just on the website, the UN's latest climate reports. So you can just go online and find it and download it. It's a pretty big document. Um, wow. I, I, don't know, I don't know how many people do that from me and all my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll include a link in the bio for anyone that's interested, but... Before we kind of wrap up this pod, Fiona, we wanted to ask you, as it is Pint of Science, what your favourite pint is. Uh, so I'm not really a beer drinker. It's not something I ever got into, but I do like a cider. My mum is from Somerset, so I've been raised drinking a certain, well, I say a certain type of cider. I'm not going to bash the people of Somerset, but my mum likes one that is flat and room temperature, <laughs> which I, I can't get on board with um but yeah something like a good chefy cider is something that is often in the turner household nice that's a good yeah i'm i have to admit i'm when it comes to cider i'm an aspel person but that's because it's from uh, from suffolk uh, and that's where i'm from so <laughs> i do like an aspels as well not an adnams i, I prefer adnams beer i guess um... yeah mosaic pale ale is that's <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us today, Fiona, and we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Proper Geog Pod. Listener, if you enjoyed this episode, please join us for our next one, where we chat to Rachel Harrington Abrams about her work at COP26 and COP27. See you then.